You're listening to the Winter of Discontent podcast. It's taken me until season four to realise I can abbreviate this to WADPOD. I've just set up a Buy Me A Coffee account for people who want to support the work we're doing and help us with sourcing some of the contemporary accounts, newspapers, magazine articles, etc. that we need to tell our story. Plus, it's not widely known, but the whole show is recorded on an iPhone, so the equipment seriously needs upgrading. So if you'd like to be a supporter, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod, W-O-D-P-O-D, and leave a tip. It's not a subscription, just a one-off show of support. Anyway, on with the show. The, the feeling between the boys wasn't good. There were fights, there were rows. Yoko was always there. It was an unhappy record. I was losing control. I, my voice wasn't heard, and I got very dispirited indeed. The Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Seven, this is roll six, 29, five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that, we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 32 Welcome back. It's still the morning of January 7th, 1969. All four Beatles are now in attendance but they've taken a break from rehearsal to discuss the upcoming show. This episode will conclude our two-part feature focusing on this discussion. But first, my recommendation for this episode is a documentary 20 feet from stardom. Following my short feature on the backing group The Blossoms, I was pointed to this eye-opener currently on Amazon Prime. Not only does it tell the story of the Blossoms and Darlene Love, but it shines a light more broadly on the hidden art of the backing singer and the huge contribution they have made to the songs we all love. Well worth your time. We're currently listening to day four on the Get Back Sessions. Yesterday's argument with Paul seems to have changed the atmosphere within the group, and today's discussions highlight the band in crisis. Listening to the audio of these discussions is admittedly hard going, but this is the only show you'll find them unedited or abridged. Before we start, as usual, here is a summary of episode 31. Paul has moved from piano to bass, though he complains that the Hofner bass has left marks on his chest, its unusual shape cutting into him. George empathises, saying he grazed his knee in the night by walking into a chair. 
Paul plays an upbeat bluesy bass part accompanied by his tapping foot and George asks Mal for his guitar. An indication that Paul is looking for inspiration comes as he riffs on some of the lines from the conversation between George and Michael. He'd previously done a similar thing while at the piano with something a crew member said. So this is Paul in songwriting mode. Paul pauses to ask Peter Sutton for a Binson Echo unit and George suggests they get better microphones. They would like to improve the admittedly distorted sound coming through the PA. Michael teases George, who has been complaining about their conversations being recorded, that he'll be able to eavesdrop even more with better mics. Paul again improvises something bluesy on the bass, George jams along, and Paul calls for a guitar solo by calling George Anita Harris. As the jam finishes, George is reminded of the Ray Charles song, What Do I Say? Michael asks if they play What Do I Say straight into Shout or the other way around. This is possibly a reference to the oldies the Beatles played for the audience at the Hey Jude shoot. Paul parodies Lulu's version of Shout and they discuss Lulu's TV show at the weekend. Lulu is a friend of the band at this time. Immediately after this conversation, Paul begins improvising again and we're treated to a glimpse into how Paul channels his muse. Surrounded by people, he creates a new song, Get Back, from just a few tiny melodic ideas. George realises the idea has potential and plays along. A break in the recording misses the point where the Get Back refrain is created and instead we hear George discussing singer Randy Newman with Glyn. Paul resumes Get Back accompanied by George and hand claps from Ringo. They are still sitting on the drum riser in front of Paul. Despite George's misgivings about Paul's leadership, George can't help but be enthusiastic about the material Paul brings to these sessions. As Paul and Michael compliment Tony Richmond on the lighting, we also learn that Paul has met Diana Ross. We learned this from his conversation with Donovan in episode one, that she wasn't too impressed with Paul when he explained to her what the song Blackbird was about. This reminds George of the night the Beatles met the Supremes in New York. They go on to discuss the replacing of one of the Supremes in their new lineup. I left this feature out of the last episode, as it was already over an hour long, so we'll include it now. For more information on this subject, can I recommend the book Detroit 67, The Year That Changed Soul by Stuart Cosgrove. The story of the rise and fall of the Supremes and the eventual ascent to superstardom of Diana Ross is one of the best illustrations of the cutthroat nature of show business. Four young teenage friends, Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, Diane Ross and Betty McGlown were all from the Brewster Douglas housing project in Detroit, the largest residential project in the city. Originally formed in 1959 as a sister group to the all-male Primes, featuring Future Temptations, Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams, they named their group the Primettes. McGlown was Paul Williams' girlfriend, and the Primes' manager Milton Jenkins built the Primettes around her and Florence Ballard. Ballard recruited school friend Mary Wilson, and Williams recruited Diane Ross. Guitarist Marvin Tarplin was added to the lineup to enable the Primettes to perform live. 
As such, they won the Windsor Detroit International Freedom Festival in 1960. Their next logical step seemed to be making a record. Ross called in a favour from one-time neighbour Smokey Robinson, who agreed to help them get an audition with Motown Records. But in the process, poached Tarplin, who became guitarist for his group, The Miracles. At the audition, Motown boss Barry Gordy felt the primates were too young and should graduate high school first and then return. Undaunted, the ambitious girl group recorded a single for rival label Lupine Records titled Tears of Sorrow, which failed to raise their profile. At this point, Ross Ballard and Wilson shared the lead vocal duties. McGlown got engaged and left the group at this point and was replaced by Barbara Martin. Still keen to make an impression at Motown, the Primettes took to hanging around the Hitsville USA recording studio and pestering producers to allow them to contribute hand claps and backing vocals to recordings by established artists like Mary Wells and Marvin Gaye. The persistence paid off and in 1961, the girls, as they were known around the studio, were finally signed to the label by Gordy. However, he insisted on a change of name for the group. From a list given to her by Gordy, Ballard, who was seen as leader, chose the Supremes. Success did not immediately follow. Between 1961 and 63, they released six singles which failed to chant and earned the nickname the No-Hit Supremes. Part of the reason for their lack of success was their lack of direction. With Barbara Martin now gone and the group reduced to a trio, but each singing lead in a different genre, Wilson favouring soft ballads, Ballard giving gutsy performances of hard soul and Ross preferring pop. By late 1963, Gordy made the decision to appoint Diane Ross as the official lead singer of the group, instantly sidelining Ballard and Wilson, who were only periodically allowed a solo number on stage or on their albums. The breakthrough came with the recording of the Holland Dozier Holland song, Where Did Our Love Go?, under duress, as none of the girls liked the song. But it goes without saying that that song was a huge smash hit, going to number one in the US pop charts and number three in the UK. Four consecutive number one singles followed. Image-wise, as George Harrison pointed out, the Supremes cultivated a very glamorous image. Not for them plain dresses and dance routines. They wore high-fashion gowns, wigs and were beautifully made up. The whole impression was created by Maxine Powell of the Motown in-house finishing school to appeal to black and white audiences. By 1965 they were international stars touring the world and Diane had changed her name to Diana Ross. And by 1966 they became the first all-female group to have an album reach number one in the Billboard chart, knocking the Beatles' revolver off the top spot in the process. They became one of the first black musical acts to appear regularly on TV shows like Hullabaloo and The Ed Sullivan Show. However, despite their success, tensions within the group were growing. Gordy was accused of favouring Ross over the other members, justifiably. In 1967, this was exacerbated by the renaming of the group, as first The Supremes with Diana Ross, and then Diana Ross and The Supremes. It became apparent to Ballard that Ross was being groomed for solo stardom. This realisation led her into bouts of depression, which she self-medicated with heavy alcohol consumption, gaining weight in the process, much to Gordy's chagrin. 
Confiding in Mary Wilson, Ballard's fears were confirmed when her friend advised her that Gordy and Ross were eager to oust her from the group. Ballard began to rebel, failing to turn up for recording sessions or being too drunk to perform at shows. In early 1967, she was temporarily replaced by Marlene Barrow, a member of Motown's backing group The Andantes. Gordy wanted a permanent replacement, however, and by April 1967 was in talks with Cindy Birdsong of Patti LaBelle's Bluebells, who was chosen as much for her resemblance to Ballard as her voice. Birdsong first replaced Ballard at the end of April, but was still under contract with the Bluebells. Gordy was slapped with an injunction from the group's lawyers. Despite being ousted from the Supremes, Ballard was convinced to return under probation, or so she believed. In reality, she was lied to. Her position in the group would again be replaced by Birdsong as soon as she became available. Unaware of this, Ballard attempted to toe the line, slimming down and sobering up to be on time for commitments. But secretly, Birdsong was following the Supremes on their dates to learn their routines. On July 1st, 1967, at the Flamingo Hotel, Las Vegas, Ballard discovered the extra set of gowns set aside for Birdsong. Angered, she got drunk, leading to an on-stage incident where she purposely stuck out her bare stomach during a dance routine. It was the final straw for Gordy. Ballard was ordered back to Detroit and dismissed from the group she had formed and had named. Tragically, Florence Ballard was unable to achieve any success as a solo artist. Her decline was swift. She sank into poverty and died aged 32 of coronary thrombosis in 1976. Ross left the Supremes for a successful solo career in 1970. George then discusses with Glynn the singing group The Blossoms, who he appears to have used during sessions in LA for Jackie Lomax's album. Another run through of the embryonic Get Back and Paul asks Glynn if he can record anything yet. Glynn is still waiting on equipment. Paul asks him to let him know when he is ready. Developing Get Back continues. Ringo gets behind the drum kit and picks up the beat and we hear a second guitar. John has arrived and joined in, clearly aware that now is not a good time to interrupt. The tape cuts and we are now listening to a lengthy conversation about the show. I summarised this at the end of episode 31, so I won't repeat it now. Suffice to say that George is now not keen to do a show at all, and Michael is trying to steer them all into finding inspiration that would make them want to do a show. It is worth noting that Michael has chosen this time, when Yoko is not present, to discuss the staging of the live show again, perhaps in response to her dominating yesterday's conversation. So let's rejoin them for part two of this conversation, where matters only get worse. Again, I'll play it through with only the occasional bit of commentary and summarise at the end. Uh, yeah, all 
also, you know, it was that idea where we thought, we're, we're, are we gonna have other people or just us? And where it's just us again, it's just, just John Paul, Jeff, and Richie just doing that. Yeah, maybe that would have done something if there'd have been all the others doing their bit as well. But then you get in the bit where the who's still the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which has been known before to happen. But, but then, let, you know, that's all down to the best man win, you know. That but actually, matter. you know... If somebody does better than you, if they play better than you. But if, if the four of you can't hold an hour, then we're all KUNTS, really. Because if anyone can hold an hour, it's you. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't mean just performance-wise. I mean, of course we can do that. It's all right. We do need an audience. We have to want to do it. To do it. And then if you, then you've got to want to do it right. It's like it's like you paper. It's like you If I had to do it, if I had to. Sync Slate 107 starts now. attention has been given to Paul spontaneously composing Get Back during breakfast this morning, another song also seems to take shape during these otherwise negative discussions between the band and Michael. George had been toying with some ragtime blues guitar on the 6th. These performances are all instrumental, so it's difficult to say whether George was treating this as a song at this point. This morning, however, some improvised vocalisations do seem to coalesce into the melody of the song that will become For You Blue, in a manner that is very similar to the way that Paul composed Get Back. This suggests that Paul and George composed in a very similar style, developing a melody by singing over a simple accompaniment to begin with, then turning the nonsense vocal phrases into lyrical ideas organically. For You Blue is that rarest of things, a Beatles blues song, sticking to a 12-bar format in the key of D throughout, with little variation. A capo is on the 5th fret and he plays the chords A, D and E, but at the moment George is playing it differently. He's playing it on his electric guitar in the key of E, with simple open chords E7, A7 and B7. The melodic line is wide-ranging, reaching to its highest point in the third line, I love you more than ever. George referred to this as a happy blues, and in fact, 
The melodic nature of the song does make it sound very upbeat, if a little too high for George's voice at the moment, which is why he drops the key later. But much like Get Back, the song is in a very embryonic form, so we will return to it when George has done more work on it. Hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. George's statement about EMI is a reference to George Martin arriving on set. Perhaps he's brought the equipment that Glyn needs. We discussed George Martin earlier in the series, but I'd like to go over the diminished role that he now has with the band. George has arrived this morning apparently with the necessary equipment that Glyn needs to capture some recordings. Even though George Martin is no longer employed by Parlophone and EMI Studios, having set up his own company, Associated Independent Recording or AIR, with business partner John Burgess in 1965, he still has enough of a relationship with EMI to be able to act as a go-between between the Beatles, Glyn Johns and the staff at EMI Abbey Road, notably Dave Harris. That is how he's been able to secure the two four-track consoles discussed on the 6th. Glyn Johns in his book, Sound Man, illustrates the strange position George found himself in. Here I am in the first hour of rehearsals, being asked for my input into the arrangement. I was amazed how quickly and easily I was accepted, each guy individually making an attempt to put me at ease and make me feel part of the team. It was only then that I realised that George Martin was not to be involved. I assumed that this was because it was a live recording and did not require the normal studio production associated with their records. The reality was a little less practical and a bit more political. Kenneth Womack's book Sound Pictures, The Life of Beatles producer George Martin asserts that George was frozen out by the Beatles in 1968 during the recording of the White Album. He would turn up with two newspapers and a large bar of chocolate which he shared with the engineers and sitting at the back of the control room reading until called upon by one of the Beatles for advice or an opinion. As can be seen in the rehearsal footage for Hey Jude, filmed by Tony Palmer at EMI, George's role appeared to consist of listening to repeated takes of the song and giving his verdict on which one was the best. 
No longer was he required to choose the best material or suggest arrangement ideas. Principally, the Beatles developed their own song arrangements in the studio by trial and error, and then called upon George to orchestrate strings or horns on the finished product. With this no longer being a requirement, with the live show and no professional recording being made yet, George Martin was out on a limb for most of the Twickenham sessions. It was a far cry from the collaborative work he had done with the band in 1967 that resulted in the triumph of Sgt Pepper. One factor that may have changed his relationship with the band was the death of Brian Epstein and the Beatles' decision to manage themselves, but Kenneth Womack cites one other reason for the change in attitude post Sgt Pepper. A Time magazine article titled The Beatles, Their New Incarnation. Interestingly, the magazine cover featured a picture of a papier-mâché sculpture of the band by artist Gerald Scarfe, who would eventually marry Paul's former girlfriend Jane Asher. It is purported that the article referred to Pepper as the new album by George Martin and credited him as the mastermind behind it. This is said to have created resentment between the Beatles and George, the band unwilling to concede that they needed to rely on anyone else to create their masterpiece. In John Lennon's infamous Rolling Stone interview published in 1971, he summed up the prevailing mood, referring to Martin as one of those people who think they made us. They didn't. It's difficult to prove whether the article did have that effect on the relationship between the band and producer. There doesn't appear to be any online transcriptions of the article, and short of bidding for a copy of, had to rely on reading fragmentary screenshots of the pages from the magazine. Overall, the article is a gushing validation of the Beatles' work so far and the current album, putting the band in the eyes of their contemporaries as the best of the best. It's hard to see how this could have caused any issues for the band. The offending statement is missing from the sections I've read, and it's hard to see how it could make the leap from effusive praise of the artistry of the Beatles to not giving them credit for their own work. Mark Lewison is also sceptical of Womack's analysis. I've talked over many years to most of the personnel on that album, i.e. the Beatles, and never heard this claim before. When you consider that for the remainder of 1967 the Beatles worked with George Martin very much at the helm on songs like All You Need Is Love and I'm The Walrus amongst others, all still relying on that collaboration between a rock band and orchestrator, it seems unlikely that a single article could have fractured their relationship. What is more likely is that the Beatles, like many rock bands at this moment, wanted authority, the ability to creatively control their output, and that, along with their creation of their business empire, is most likely the reason that they wanted as much as possible to supervise their own sessions and claim ownership of the whole creative process. This even went as far as to retrospectively claim credit for innovations that couldn't be true, such as when John Lennon claimed to have accidentally discovered the sound of backwards tape for the outro of the song Rain. Despite George Martin having used similar effects on his comedy recordings, and the Beatles themselves using the effect earlier in the same recording sessions on Tomorrow Never Knows. It is telling of their respect for him, however, that despite George Martin not being under contract to EMI, and therefore not under any obligation to work with the Beatles, he was still called upon by them to be present during this new project, despite there being no clear role for him yet.
Oh, Hello, George. Yeah, you see the best idea. Yeah. All right, lads. The best idea is straight entertainment. Make the most entertaining show of all time. That's what that, that is right. Because that's what you want to see. Oh, do you? Do I? See home in New York. Just straight, great, fantastic, touching, beautiful, rock and rolly, and pointed entertainment. It'd be nice, you see, uh, if we were just singing these songs, for me to watch it, I'd be bored if it was, oh, thank you, now we'd like to do, and all that. If it was like just edits from, you know, clap, clap, bam, and you know, just like that, like they do those films. That'd be better. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot will come out of it if we could get the enthusiasm. See, I think, you see, the truest thing is terrible. Just, I mean, imagine yeah, if, if we get it together. Two things, you know, we're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I want a decision of 
Because I'm, I'm not interested enough to, cut, to spend my fucking days farting around here while everyone makes up their minds whether they want to do it or not. You know, I'll do it. If everyone else will and everyone wants to do it, then all right. <laughs> it's just a bit soft, you know. It's, the like, point is it's like at school, you know, you've got to be here. And I haven't. I haven't, you know. I've, See, I've left school. We've all left school and you don't have to go. But you get into a scene where you do have to go. No, see, the first thing to get together is, is yourselves, totally. And then we all follow with our kit bags and our cameras. So it's like, if we're doing the show, we're going to have to work hard, and we're going to have to even think of how many songs per day we'll have to have rehearsed in order to by five days before it to normal. Now, five days before it is a week from now. That means by the time a week from now comes, all these songs we've got, we've got to know perfectly. And then five days will really, really get, get us to know. There's no use to sort of waiting for them to rehearse themselves until we've got to pull off the date and get to the cameras and say, we've done, we've gone, we've done. We need another week. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they lumber you, you know. Yeah. Just say get anybody. Actually, I meant to call anyway. you on Saturday That's and ask you, but I kept forgetting all about it. But yeah. I booked the support. session. Strings aren't as difficult as brass. Yeah. Yeah. The ten a penny. George Harrison talks to George Martin about a string session he's forgotten about. George Martin reassures George that string players are easy to hire at short notice. This is presumably for Jackie Lomax. Everybody pull your socks up. The first day you came in, the first day was the best musical day for now. It's that musical day, yeah. Because you would eat about four numbers. Last year. Or snap into it. You know, last year. You know, but the past couple of months, you know, it's been this when the album was like this, you see. The album was worse than What agony. Well, just the whole idea of do you want to do it? Do we want to do it? And, and that's the joke, you see. After it all came about, apparently Neil was saying, we'd all phoned him individually, saying things like, you know, can you get them together? Can you get it? Can you get it together? You know, I want to, you know, I want to know. What are we doing? But like, instead of asking each other, we well, have gone to Neil you know, like, and asked him, you know, what are one of the lads doing? We should just have it out. But we keep coming up against that one, and I keep saying, yeah. yeah, well, I'd like to do this, this, and that. Yeah, and I'd like to do this, and I'd like to do that, and I'd like to do that. And we end up doing something again that nobody really wants to do. Well, then, you know, I think, you know, if this Maybe one public turns into that, it should definitely be the last for all of us. Because there just isn't any point. Yeah, that's it. 
I mean, I'd be sad. I mean, as an audience, I'd be sad. It's stupid, you know. It is just stupid. But it's even more stupid the other way to go through it. I agree, because but it's if, just this time know, where you could be you using for what like, you want to be creative instead of you know, doldrums, which it always is. I wrote in my book, because I tried to keep a diary of what's going on, so I could cut it. Doldrums is the word I use. The doldrums have been coming like a, like to a ship on a boat. Well, the Beatles have been in doldrums for at least a year. You see, yeah, that that is that is terrible. Out of a need, yeah. and that's you know all that existential discourse. Thank you, Jean Paul. If you don't, you know, okay, yeah, then I have like, better ideas. But if you get in, call him Jean Paul George, but it's Jean Paul Sartre. We had a joke over here. You heard that? Yeah. yeah. Call him Jean Paul George, as opposed to Jean Paul Sartre. So we had existentialism. Um, yeah, I like it's communication, and I think, I mean. songs from 1948 was because I knew very well the moment I'd bring them in the studio that there they has gone you know and uh, so I never and like slowly now I can bring a couple out because it's I can get it more like how it, it should have been then and that's you know Notice it. Um, well, and, 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 and,
You know, instead of just noticing it, determined to put it right. You know, because that's what I, that's what I'm on to. We should have a divorce. Well, I said that at the last meeting. But it's getting nearer, you know. Who'd have the children? Dick James is the Beatles' music publisher. More about him later. Because, you know, that's what I was telling you on the phone. But I'll do that. You know, just because it is so silly of us now at this point in our lives to crack up. It's just so silly. Because there's no point. We're not going to get anywhere that we want to get by doing that. The only possible direction is the other way from that, you know. You know, that is the only possible direction. But the thing is, we're just all sort of theoretically agreeing with it. We're not doing it, you know. You're doing your bit through you and your plane. But it's sillier to sort of uh, come in and talking down to us. Well, actually, your way out is not to talk, you know, rather than talk down to us, which you'd have to do, you think. You wouldn't. I mean, remember, I think I'm talking down to you too. No, you know, we're not. <laughs> we know we're all, we're all right, all of us. But we just sort of get into talking down to each Once again, this is really only a three-way conversation. The absence of Yoko this morning means that John's point of view isn't really put across. John remains silent throughout much of this conversation, noodling on his guitar rather than engage with Paul, Michael and George, who were effectively discussing the breakup of the band. And this frankly is incredible. Paul attempts to tackle John head-on, but his questions are just brushed aside by John. We learn from this conversation that the Beatles have held a business meeting about the project and it would appear that three of the four have no enthusiasm for what they're doing at all. Paul appears to be questioning John on whether he still thinks the same as he did last night. John replies that he's still thinking about it. We don't learn what he actually said, unfortunately. But John's silence is later addressed by Paul. He remarks on John's tendency and his own to talk down to his bandmates and his current silence is just another manifestation of that, in essence showing that he believes his work with Yoko is more worthy of his attention than the band. At the meeting we also learn that Mal has asserted himself and explained the reality of their situation, that even if they decide to stay at Twickenham, they need to make that decision now so that set building etc can get underway. He is still a cheerleader for the band, validating them and trying to persuade them that they are very much needed. Michael too tries to reassure those Beatles that are paying attention that they are great. His views on staging the show overseas have not changed, but with the future of the project in jeopardy, he decides to change tack. He sides with Mal, stating entertainment is enough and they should focus on making the most entertaining show of all time. He believes that, unlike the Rolling Stones, who he has just worked with, the Beatles can carry a whole TV show for an hour. Though he adds, as an aside, that it needs to be in the best place. 
Amusingly, he spells out that if they can't make an entertaining show with just four Beatles, then they are all K-U-N-T-S. This is Michael trying to lighten the mood of quite a difficult situation. But teasing Paul, he calls the Beatles corny and even quotes a line of John's, everybody pulled their socks up. Overall, his view is that if the Beatles can't get it together for a show, it would be very sad. After all, they are potentially putting together a great package, an album, a documentary and a live show. He does sow the seeds of an idea that will get pursued. An open air performance in a park, if only it wasn't so cold. But clearly aware he has stirred up a hornet's nest, he quickly retreats from further discussion. George, as ever, remains unconvinced that the live show, particularly a traditional style one, is a good idea. He agrees with Michael that a lot could come out of the show if they could only summon up some enthusiasm. The issue, as he sees it, is dissatisfaction caused by compromise. The different Beatle members want to do different things and the compromised result pleases nobody. We end up doing something nobody really wants to do, he says. The work they are doing together seems to George to be wasting his time, which he feels he could use more creatively on his own. Restressing that the band have been in the doldrums for at least a year, again most likely since the death of Brian Epstein, Ultimately, it seems that George feels he has outgrown the Beatles, and he openly states that he doesn't think they perform his songs how he would like them. George does make a couple of interesting observations, however. He compares his three bandmates to the three wise monkeys. Hear no evil, we presume Paul. Speak no evil, the silent John. And see no evil, the uncontroversial Ringo. That said... Ringo can be heard on this recording flatly stating that he's not interested, though it's not clear what this refers to, travel or the show as a whole. George also comments, a need spins out of a need, an existentialist quote of unknown provenance. The philosophy of existentialism is more than a little at odds with George's own interest in Hinduism and the Hare Krishna movement. Influential in continental Europe in the 1930s, Existentialism treats human existence and the world as a whole, and ultimately without meaning. The defining characteristic of the human being is that they exist or are in the world and inhabit it. What an existentialist does not believe in is a spirit or soul. In fact, they are the ultimate radical atheist. When George quotes the phrase, a need spins out of a need, Although it's hard to know where this exactly comes from, I suspect it's a commentary on the meaninglessness of performing tasks. It could be a reference to the myth of Sisyphus, punished by Zeus to eternally push a boulder up a hill in the depths of Hades, a favourite of the existentialists. It's not known where George had learned what he did about existentialism, but one possibility is the group of German art students who befriended the band in Hamburg in 1960. As non-conformist students, they modelled their style and dress on existential philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre. John Lennon naturally christened them Exes, but they weren't exactly devotees of the teachings by those diverse philosophers. Astrid Kirikir, one of the group, stated that they could be seen wearing black clothes and going around looking moody. 
Of course, I've had a clue who Jean-Paul Sartre was. We got inspired by all the French artists and writers because that was the closest we could get. England was so far away and America was out of the question. They rejected blue jeans and plaid shirts of the American 1950s in favour of black clothes, black polo neck sweaters and long, long scarves. With her student friend Jürgen Vollmer and Klaus Vormann, all three had adopted a cropped, clean hairstyle, brushed forward, the antithesis of the rocker's greasy quiff. And they all smoked French Galois cigarettes, the epitome of cool in 1960. Vorman came across the Beatles after an argument with Kirikur and Volmer one night. Going for a walk to clear his head, he heard loud, energetic music coming from the Kaiserkeller Club. Venturing in, he was immediately overwhelmed by the dynamism and charisma of the Beatles on stage. The following night, he encouraged his friends to attend with him. And there they would remain, night after night, on a table in front of the stage, barely missing a show. They were jazz fans. They were a callback to the swing youth, the non-conformist jazz fans of Hamburg, mercilessly persecuted by the Nazis in the 1940s. They weren't rock and rollers, but something about the Beatles captivated them. The feeling, at least for one member of the group, was mutual. Looking effortlessly cool behind shades, dwarfed by his Hofner president bass, Stuart Sutcliffe saw petite, elfin beauty Astrid, and for him it was love at first sight. As Bill Harry, publisher of Merseybeat, would later say, When she walked in, every head would turn her way. For Astrid too, it was a life-changing event. It was like a merry-go-round in my head. My whole life changed in a couple of minutes. All I wanted was to be with him and know them. Soon, due to Stuart's connection with Astrid, he quickly moved to a room at her family home and the Beatles spent more time with the Eggsies, adopting much of their style and perhaps philosophy along the way. For George, existentialism may have been a stopping off point on his spiritual quest as he abandoned his Catholicism and searched for a meaning to his life. For Stuart and Astrid, the random nature of existence would become all too real. In February of 1962, Stuart collapsed at college he was thereafter debilitated by intense headaches and violent mood swings. German doctors could not find a cause and by April he was dead, leaving the unpredictable world in the arms of the woman who would always refer to him as the love of her life. At the centre of the discussion, of course, is Paul, still adamant that the Beatles are a great act. He interjects that they can hold an audience's attention for an hour, stressing that of course they can do it, but we have to want to do it, or else effectively be made to do it. The Beatles have responded well to tight deadlines in the past, but now the situation is different. It clearly wasn't the deadline itself that was the motivation in the past, but their own collective enthusiasm. Now, Paul finds himself the only voice in the band truly in favour of playing the live show, and he feels isolated. He openly asks his bandmates, is anyone else here because they want to do a show? And bemoans the fact that he's getting no support. A comment that echoes his statement yesterday, and seems to be pointed at John, an ally he used to rely on. For Paul, the desire to perform live under any circumstances even includes putting the matching suits back on and going on tour. 
a prospect that none of his bandmates would relish, and seems more than a little out of step with contemporary trends. We learn that Paul's original idea for the TV show was to intercut the live performance with the documentary. But in the end, he has realised that this is just combining two weak ideas into an unsatisfactory whole. So despite initiating the idea for the project, he doesn't have a clear idea himself where it's heading. But Paul is self-aware enough to note that the apathy of his bandmates leads him to push all his ideas on them, even when he knows they aren't the best. In their meeting, Paul states he was shouting, are we going to do it or not? Because if they are not, then he's not prepared to waste his time. As with his direct questions today, it doesn't appear that anyone wants to commit to an answer. The logistics of getting the live show together is a driver for Paul. He works on the principle that they need five days to put the show together. Therefore, they need to have arranged and learned all the new material by this time next week. Time is running out for them, but a deadline yet again is failing to be the motive force it once was. The Beatles, as George states, are in the doldrums, but to Paul, these rehearsals aren't as bad as the sessions for last year's double album. At that point, communication had got so bad between the four that each was using longtime associate Neil Aspinall as a go-between. Now, at least with Michael attempting to mediate, some discussion is taking place. In response to George's comment that compromise means they all do something that they don't want to do, Paul throws in the towel. If it turns into what George says, then it should definitely be the last for all of us. But he reasons, it doesn't matter if things are going wrong, so long as the Beatles acknowledge it's going wrong and want to put it right. This is what prompts George, who is too apathetic to fix the situation, to suggest that they should have a divorce. Paul feels that moment is coming, but it will be silly. He knows that a breakup wouldn't solve any of George's problems, merely create new ones. Michael, aware of how dire the situation is with two of the Beatles openly discussing the breakup of the group, opts to leave the Beatles alone to think more and have lunch together in the hope this will resolve matters. Once again, a lot of energy has been spent and we are now, if anything, further from having an idea of how to stage the show. Despite the frankness of the exchange, the Beatles press on with rehearsals, finding some unity in performing together. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.